Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I'm joined as always by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Simon, how has the week been in the markets? Well, certainly the first four days of the week uh, has seen the UK market in positive territory, up about 0.1% or so. And that's after a sell-off at the start of the week when actually the UK market fell 2.3%. Uh, it's recovered, obviously, since then. Investment companies slightly ahead of the wider UK market. In fact, in terms of the sector average discount, perhaps unsurprisingly, it did widen out on Monday, probably reached somewhere near about 4%. And then it's narrowed in subsequently, so probably about 3.3% overall. But clearly, a lot of concern about inflation and uh, also the surge of the Delta variant. What does that mean to the world economic recovery? Uh, When we did see the sell-off at the start of the week, it particularly uh, hit banks, airlines, all companies, uh, and perhaps more the kind of cyclical value plays more heavily. But certainly in the UK, at least, we've seen some kind of more positive data. Retail sales have surged in June, and there's a lot of talk about how earnings data is surprising on the upside as well. Yes, yeah, so the earnings have been doing going uh, quite well ahead of expectations, still rising. That's, I think it's levelled off a little bit. And uh, there have been some concerns about economic growth as well. I think that's one of the factors, another factor as well, that uh, maybe people have been overestimating how long the uh, and how fast the recovery from COVID is going to be. So be it. In any case, let's have a look now at some of the uh, latest investment trust news, as always do. We're going to kick off with corporate activity. And uh, there's been a further update from GCP Student Living. That's DIGS, D-I-G-S is the ticker. And what's been the news there? Yeah, that's right. Well, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we first discussed this one. At that stage, the board of GCP Student Living came out and uh, it was following some press speculation they confirmed at that stage that it received a series of non-binding proposals, but the story has moved on apace. Basically, they announced, the board announced this week that they'd reached agreement on terms and conditions of a recommended cash acquisition by effectively a bidco for the entire issued share capital of the investment company. Dick's shareholders, should this be approved, they will receive Uh, in cash, 213p per share. Now, that represents a premium of about 31% to the closing share price uh, back on the 1st of July, which is just ahead of that initial announcement. It also represents a 19% premium to the EPRA NTA, which is equivalent to the NAV, as at the 31st of March. And also, and this is probably the key element, uh, it's a 9% premium to the revaluation uh, being that 31st of March, NAV adjusted for increasing property valuations between then and the end of June. So this is what they flagged up earlier in the month. They said, well, we expect a rise in our valuation. But all things considered, it values the company at about £969 million. Pounds, and the consortium, uh, so effectively the outfit, the bidding for the investment company, Scape Living in IQ, and they are backed by uh, funds managed by APG Asset Management. So again, this will be all subject to shareholder approval and court meetings and all the rest of it. But 60% of the assets will be transferred to Scape Living and 40% transferred to IQ. So yes, quite a significant uplift, unsurprising to the share price as a result of this one. 
So that suggests that maybe the market wasn't quite as uh, attuned to the value of this uh, company as investors thought. And in terms of the share price in the market, as it were, what's happened? Presumably, it's gone up uh, pretty close to the uh, the bid price, has it? Yeah, absolutely right. So as I mentioned, it the bid price is 213p. That's effectively where the share price is at the moment. And you know, to, just to put some context around that, back in March last year, which is obviously in the year uh, for markets, it fallen to 108p, and it had recovered to an extent before then. But actually, just when we go back to uh, the original announcement of the, the start of this month, it was at about 195p. And at that stage, there wasn't a kind of hard and fast uh, number on the table. So uh, even if you'd kind of bought in at that stage, you've still seen a pretty decent uplift. But um, it's interesting to note that that 213p, that bid price, is effectively where the share price was ahead of the, the market sell-off. So we're going back to February 2020. So interesting, it's been quite a roller coaster ride for this one. But um, one suspects many shareholders would be, be quite happy to take that 213p price away with them. And is there any, any kind of read across we can take from this? I mean, there are some other companies, investment trusts that uh, are in the UK residential property sector, but they all do slightly different things, obviously. Does this have any implications for the other companies, would you think? Well, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, probably the nearest in that particular subsector is Empiric Student Property. That's trading still on a discount, actually, in terms of the last NEV that we've got. We've got on about a 7% discount, but that compares with an average discount of 27% over the previous 12 months. And in fact, it's seen about a 10% rise in its share price so far this month, and it's up 27% year to date. But no, you make a good point. It's a really interesting one because clearly property has been hit not all property types, but many property types have been hit very hard by um, the pandemic uh, for very obvious reasons. And yet they have, uh, many of them have seen a good recovery so far this year. I think there was some speculation that there was certainly value uh, in a number of these property plays, but difficult to uh, estimate exactly what that would be. In this particular case, it's interesting that uh, Scape Living, who I mentioned, is, is part of the consortium they're actually responsible for uh, operating a number of these student properties. So they have pretty good insight, one suspects, into what these assets are really worth. And of course, the uh, APG, the, this company, has, uh, has a significant stake in the GCP student living already, uh, I think just over 10%. So presumably, there's no chance of anybody else coming in to try and uh, make a higher offer in this case. It looks like a pretty uh, done and dusted deal. Well, as I mentioned, the board of GCP Student Living have reached agreement on, on terms and conditions. I haven't got in front of me the, the time scale, the timetable that they're going to be operating on, though they have said that the acquisition is expected to complete during the fourth quarter of this year. So um, could we see a, a counter bid? I mean, it's not an impossibility, clearly. But one suspects that if you look at where the market was valuing this company just ahead of this most recent announcement, as I said, it was below 200p, about 195p effectively. So we're, we're up best part of, well, around 18p to be precise since then. So often when you see these kind of bids, it's always worth seeing where the market's pricing them before they come in. In this case, it was at a premium to, to the market value. Okay, so let's move on and talk about uh, Pershing Square Holdings. This is one of the well-known hedge fund investment trusts run by a gentleman called Bill Ackman. And we've had reason to talk about him recently. He had a very good year last year. Had a very good pandemic, one can say. He uh, got the market exactly right uh, around that point. But this is more recently about its deal. His latest announcement is about the deal it was proposing with uh, a SPAC, or Special Purpose Acquisition Company, in which Pershing Square Holding also has an interest. And that deal was to purchase uh, 
a stake in Universal Music Group, but this is not going quite according to plan. No, I think that's a, a fair appraisal. They announced this week, and in fact, there was a letter from Bill Ackman himself, that the regulator in the US has basically forbidden this deal. They looked at this this whole proposal, this idea that uh, Pershing Square Tontine Holdings would uh, acquire 10% of Universal Music Group. Uh, and for one reason or another, they said, no, we, they wouldn't give it approval. Effectively, the structure was not um, qualified to do this kind of deal under New York Stock Exchange rules. So what does this mean? Well, actually, they're going to um, kind of proceed. But instead of the SPAC, Tontine Holdings, Pershing Square Tontine Holdings making the acquisition, it's now Pershing Square Holdings itself looks set to make the investment into Universal Music Group, or at least 10% of that particular company. Vivendi are the seller of this company. And the idea is that uh, Universal Music Group comes to the market in its own right towards the end of this year. So it's still a little unclear exactly how it will work. But certainly Vivendi seemed to suggest that Pershing Square Holdings will take a stake of between 5 and 10% in Universal Music Group. So it's going to be quite a large deal. I think we were looking at a 10% stake being valued at 4 billion US dollars. So we can do the maths and work out that it's going to be quite a sizable investment. But it's worth noting that Pershing Square Holdings, um, this is kind of what it does, really. It has a very concentrated portfolio between about 10 and 15 holdings. So it can own large stakes. Um, it's actually kind of capped out the most that it can invest of its uh, gross assets, I think is about 25%. That's the maximum position under its Articles of Association. But even so, it's a large position. And the people at Pershing Square still have a bit of flexibility here if they wish to bring in some co-investors alongside them. But the headline, as far as Bill Ackman and the, and the team are concerned, is that they want to proceed with this investment. They're very excited about Universal Music Group. They think it's a, it's a great opportunity for them. Uh, and they're prepared to find the capital to back the deal. Yes, it was a very complicated transaction. And uh, it appears that it may perhaps have been a little too clever by half, as it were, I mean, if this form and file of the SPAC regulations. Uh, I mean, it was quite clever because uh, the way he did it, he only had to buy this stake in Universal Music rather than do a merger or acquisition, which is what SPACs are normally used for. But the uh, the SPAC is still there, isn't it, I think? And uh, it says it's now going to look for a new merger partner and has 18 months remaining to sign a new transaction, uh, which will be structured as a conventional SPAC merger. So basically, you've still got this SPAC opportunity, SPAC somewhat controversial phenomenon at the moment, I would say. But uh, anyway, for, for the moment, Pershing Square Holders is going to end up with a big a big stake in Universal Music Group, which may be even too big for it. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. What's happened to the Pershing Square Holdings share price in all this? The SPAC share price has fallen away quite uh, sharply, I believe. But uh, what's happened to Pershing Square Holdings this week? Yeah, it seems to have taken in its stride, to be perfectly honest. I mean, as you say, it's had a very good year in 2020, Pershing Square Holdings. So far this year, it's up about 2% year to date. And there's been a bit of volatility around the share price, but nothing particularly notable. It still trades on a big discount to its NAV. So it's on about a 25% discount, which I know must be an annoyance to some of its shareholders, including presumably Bill Ackman, who has a large personal stake. But the, the volatility of its share price is far less than that smack that you mentioned. Um, I mean, I think it came to the market uh, only last year about $20 or $22. It went up to $33 at one stage before falling back to below $21. So there's something that was effectively a cash shell. That's, uh, that's quite a wild ride. Yes, there was a lot of uh, hope and expectation built into that, <laughs> into the SPAC price. That's for certain. 
Well, that's going to be another uh, interesting saga. So this transaction is uh, due to take place, I think, in the autumn sometime. So we'll have to wait and see when that, whether that goes through and on what basis. But an interesting development there. So let's move on and talk about another investment trust. This one is uh, managed, again, from the United States. And this is Riverstone Energy, RSE, which, again, has had a rather, uh, how should we say, torrid time over the last uh, two, three years, I think it's fair to say. No, that's absolutely right. Uh, I mean, back in private deals in effectively oil companies in America, it's clearly been a tough place to be. But they've announced this week that they've um, sold a stake to a joint venture partner for $172 million. Um, effectively, they got their money back that they originally invested, but it represented a 20 23% premium to the carrying value as at the end of last year. And that particular uh, investment it was oil-focused exploration projects in the Gulf of Mexico. So why is this noteworthy? Well, Riverstone Energy had already made it clear that they wanted to kind of tilt, shift towards providing uh, capital to accelerate investments in decarbonisation and low-carbon power generation, um, as well as using some liquidity to support share repurchases as well. And the board have made it clear that they will consider tender offers and dividends. And following this deal, actually, they end up holding quite a bit of cash over $220 million. And they've got some what they describe as freely marketable securities. So I think that means publicly listed stakes that they can effectively turn into cash as well. So I suspect the, the idea is that they uh, tackle their discount, which has been pretty wide. In the last 12 months, it's averaged about 33% and has been as wide as 49%. So this is certainly uh, an investment company, a specialist investment company that the, the market has fallen out of love with. I think that's fair to say, isn't it? I mean, they, they went along quite nicely for a while. And then from about 2017, 2018, basically, it sort of fell off a cliff, uh, both the share price and the discount widening significantly as well, uh, which is a bit strange, particularly this year when, um, you know, commodity prices have been pretty strong uh, as part of this uh, recovery reopening uh, trade. So um, what do you think the future for this one is, uh, Simon? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, a Riverstone are you know, renowned in this particular part of the marketplace. And obviously, they are trying to shift the portfolio quite significantly. And this deal is an important part of that story. You know, clearly, you need liquidity. And if you're investing in private deals, then sometimes liquidity can prove quite elusive. So I think this gives them a chance to kind of repoint their portfolio and also uh, tackle the discount as well, which, as I mentioned, has been quite wide. But um, I would, I'd kind of place this firmly in the special situation, Cameron. Clearly, a lot of work to be done. A lot of work to be done, indeed. Well, let's move on and talk about uh, fundraising. There's been more fundraising uh, news this week, uh, as so often this year. And let's kick off by talking about Bluefield Solar Income Fund, BSIF. Yes, and it's, it's another example of an oversubscribed fundraising. Uh, they announced they'd raised £105 million. And actually, the size of the deal was increased to satisfy demand in full. So they issued 89 million shares at a price of 118p per share. So that increases the number of shares in issue by about 22%. Uh, those new shares began trading on Friday. And, and this is probably the most interesting aspect of this particular deal. So despite the name, Bluefield Solar, the actual proceeds uh, for this fundraising uh, will include uh, making an acquisition of their maiden UK wind portfolio of which uh, features over 90% regulated revenues. But um, again, just to put some context around that, they last raised money in November last year, uh, which stage they raised £45 million. That was oversubscribed at a price of 124p per share. 
Yeah, so they were diversifying away from their solar base and uh, buying wind assets, which have also obviously been very popular recently. So the shares started trading. How are they trading now? I mean, have they gone back to a significant premium now? Yeah, so they're on a premium of about 7% at the moment, uh, certainly the way at close of Thursday. And they've averaged probably a premium about 15% actually over the last 12 months. So in common with a number of those renewable energy infrastructure plays, we've seen premium levels contract over uh, the course of this year. Yeah, so do you think just the fact that they are diversifying away from their original core business, obviously the market likes uh, it at the moment, but do you think they'll have to kind of reprove their credentials as, as a successful operator of wind power as well as solar power? I mean, I've heard some of the shareholders uh, express some concerns about the fact that obviously what they're doing now is 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 a step out. It's not necessarily that different from uh, what they've done so far, but it is uh, not quite the same business as they were doing before. No, you make a good point, though. I think what I would note is that uh, across the wider renewable energy infrastructure uh, space that we've seen a number of funds effectively evolve over their existence. So probably the best example of that is JLEN Environmental Assets Group, uh, that when it launched was very much focused on wind and solar. And it's always had a wider remit, to be fair. And as time has gone on, it's really uh, looked to embrace different opportunities, albeit still in line with the kind of renewable energy uh, infrastructure story. So I don't think Bluefield solar income is alone, though, uh, as I think we discussed before, I might need to uh, think about doing something about its name uh, if it does continue to go down this route. But I think it also reflects pricing levels uh, in some of the asset classes, so solar obviously being a key one, but also the greater opportunity set that exists uh, elsewhere as well. And this, of course, one of the one of the attractions of this trust is that it has a significant yield. What's what's the yield on this one uh, now going to be? Yeah, so I've got the yield at six point eight percent on its uh, current share price. Now that represents a premium to the average of its uh, renewable energy infrastructure peer group, which is probably averaging around about five point two percent. So you do see a pickup in yield on this one. Okay, let's move on and talk about Home REIT H O M. E, and they've had some news about a possible equity raise, uh, I think, this week. That's right. Uh, To be fair, it's a potential equity raise. So just to uh, remind us of the story on this one, they actually launched back in October last year when they raised gross proceeds of £240 million, which is a pretty decent size IPO. Um, Thereafter, actually, they secured a deadline of £120 million. uh, Now, uh, since that point, they've actually invested over £300 million, in other words, we use some of the debt as well. So they've got remaining 60 million of debt. And in fact, that is now committed as well. In addition to that, the fund remains on target to meet its dividend target. So the board is kind of looking at where they are and the potential future acquisitions. There's apparently there's a significant pipeline. And so they're considering raising additional capital to support that. They believe that any net proceeds would be substantially invested within three to six months of admission. So I guess that means that we're doing it as a, as a placing rather than as a C share. Uh, and any issues of, of the shares will be at a price per share that's secretive to NAV, uh, which is pretty standard and at a discount to the prevailing share price. So uh, marking people's cards, they're looking to, to raise more money. I guess we should just remind ourselves what this company does. Uh, they're in the business of providing accommodation for homeless people. Is uh, Am I right about that? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. So um, again, a very specialist property play and uh, obviously meets people's uh, ESG demands very well as well. So it clearly had a following wind at the time of its IPO last year. 
yes, I think it's fair to make the point, perhaps it's an obvious point, but they're not reliant on uh, getting income from homeless people. <laughs> they're reliant on uh, getting income from the organisations that provide homeless accommodation. And indeed, there is legislation out there now, which is uh, making it mandatory on uh, number of authorities to do something about the homeless problem, provide more accommodation. So it seems to be in a good place, as you say. Shall we move on and talk about JP Morgan Global Core Real Assets? That's J-A-R-A. This is one we've talked about uh, from time to time. What have they had to say? So this fund uh, announced that on the 14th of July, it issued 5.9 million new shares. And again, the day later, an additional 2 million shares. And that's part of their ongoing placing program. And the proceeds from those two uh, issuance will be invested in the US core real estate mezzanine debt strategy, which again is a bit of a mouthful. Um, But this, they believe, will enhance the fund's income profile as basically that strategy is delivering returns at the top end of the total return target of 7 to 9%. And that includes an income projection of between 4 to 6% in local currency. So you're absolutely right. We have talked about this one a number of times and its importance within the JP Morgan stable in providing exposure to its investment managers' wider platform of private deals. So I think they'd be delighted to have issued new shares. Yes, we've talked about this one before in the context of given how big a position JP Morgan has in this particular asset class, real assets on a global basis, that this investment trust has taken a little bit of time to get going. But it suggests that there is uh, some demand out there and we might see them uh, come again to the market at some point, I I would expect, if they're able to do so. Yeah, I think that's right. So if you look at their their rating, I mean, over the previous 12 months, they've averaged a 7% premium. It's probably at the lower end of that at the moment, even on on a slight discount. But effectively, yes, they will be quite keen to preserve that rating where they can. What's the yield on that one if I was looking at comparing it to you know, some other investments we've talked about? Yeah, sure. So the yield is about 4% or so at the moment. So it sits in the flexible investments subsector where there are a number of investment trusts that offer a yield, but probably uh, the minority. So the average yield on those flexible investments peer group is about 1.7% at the moment. Okay, so let's move on and start talking about some results. We're going to kick off with uh, the Brunner Investment Trust. That's B-U-T. This is part of the Alliance stable of investment trusts, and they've had some interim results. That's right. They've had interim results for the six months to the end of May, in which time uh, they generated an NAV total return of 12.4%. Now, that compared with their benchmark of 113 It's worth saying their benchmark is 70% FTSE World XUK and then 30% FTSE All Share. So they outperformed that benchmark. And in share price terms, they did even better, actually. It was up 18.2% as the discount narrowed from about 11% into about 9%. Matthew Tillett took over the management of this particular investment trust, and uh, he benefited, or the portfolio benefited, from um, its exposure to cyclical industries. They were certainly positive in that six-month period, whereas uh, more defensive companies lagged. Uh, and they also had some positive stock selection in the healthcare area. But uh, he makes it clear in his uh, investment manager's report that he's very much focused on long-term fundamentals rather than shorter-term cyclical considerations. Um, but they also provided an update on their dividend. In terms of revenue per share, uh, they were actually up 36% period on period. So they, that came in at 11.4p, and they declared a dividend of 9.4p. Uh, and they made it clear that the full year dividend of 20 spot 15p is expected. And um, again, all eyes on the dividend on this one. They said that uh, the dividend cover is expected in future years. So a positive statement there. Yes. And uh, this trust sits in the global uh, sector. 
we haven't talked about this one for a little while, then perhaps you could just uh, fill us in on how it sits, you know, how big is it, where does it sit, and uh, uh, what kind of uh, rating does it have at the moment? So it has a market cap of just short of 440 million, which is, means it's a decent size investment company, though, uh, as you said, in that global peer group, there are some pretty large uh, investment trust companies, obviously Scottish Mortgage, the market cap of 19 billion sits in there as well, but even funds like FNC, four and a half billion, uh, Witten, 1.9 billion, uh, and Bankers, 1.5. So there are some big funds in that sector. So uh, possibly easy to overlook Brunner to an extent. Uh, it trades on a discount of about seven or eight percent or so. And that's actually been re rated. And I think there's, uh, there's quite a bit of talk actually in the chairman's statement on Brunner that they'd uh, really focused on raising the profile of this investment trust among uh, retail investors in particular uh, through various promotional activities. And, and certainly the discount has uh, tightened in, though it still remains wider than the average discount for that global peer group, which is probably near to about 3% or so at the moment. Okay, so now let's move on and talk about another one in the same sector, which is uh, perhaps uh, slightly better known, and that is uh, the Alliance Investment Trust. They've had some results as well, and they're obviously slightly larger than Brunner. How have they done? Yep, so they announced interim results to the end of June. Uh, In that time, their NAV total return was up 14.8%, and that compares with a rise of 11.1% for the MSCI All Countries World Index. Uh, In share price terms, actually in line with the index, up 11.1% as the discount widened from 3.5% to 6.7%. Uh, and that's despite the fact they bought back over 7 million shares at a cost of £68 million. So um, their outperformance in, in NAV terms, at least, was a result of strong stock selection. Names such as Alphabet and not holding Apple worked for them, whereas the largest detractors were Santen Pharmaceutical and New Oriental Education and Technology Group. But this is a effectively a fund of funds or multi-manager approach, I think you'd probably call it. And in terms of the 10 underlying stock pickers, seven outperformed their indices uh, this year with the value-based managers basically recovering some of the previous year's losses. Uh, Difficult time in 2020 for value-based investors. Um, In terms of the revenue earnings per share, they came in at 6.93p, and that was down slightly from 7.07p in the comparable period, so the first half of 2020, although they've declared dividends of 7.404p, and that's up 3% year-on-year. And the board expects to extend the fund's 54-year track record of dividend increases. And probably this is one of the more important takeaways from this these set of results, is that the board is actually reviewing whether a more attractive and sustainable level of distribution may be provided in future. So uh, we'll find out what, exactly what that means in due course. But in terms of the fund's ESG credentials, They've reflected on their goal of transitioning the portfolio to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, uh, and they actually will exclude investments in stocks with significant exposure to thermal coal and tar sands, uh, and they've made that declaration. So I recall they had a bit of a rejig of some of the managers in their portfolio a little while ago, and uh, so obviously been a little bit of improvement there. And in terms of, you mentioned the dividend, I mean, what is the yield on allowance at the moment? And uh, where they say they might considering ways of making it more attractive, presumably that means increasing it a little bit. What is the yield at the moment? Yeah, so they're yielding 1.4% on a historical basis at the moment. And again, that compares with a weighted average of 0.8%, though that's skewed by Scottish mortgage. And even if you look at it on a kind of a medium average basis, it comes at 1.8%. So they're a little bit behind where their wider peer group is, though there is obviously quite a range within that. It's a moot point at what level dividend do you have to kind of get to? 
that it becomes uh, attractive that people are willing to uh, invest in your shares as a, on the basis of the dividend return. But uh, 1.4%, although not in, unimportant, is probably a little bit lower uh, than I suspect many investors would like. Yeah, certainly lower than a number of the other things that uh, investors have warmed to uh, more recently when yield has become significantly more important to many shareholders. Okay, let's move on and talk about another trust, which is always of interest to us because it invests in other investment trusts, and that is Mighton Global Opportunities, M-I-G-O. This is managed by uh, Nick Greenwood and uh, Charlotte Culberson. And how are they done? They've done very well, actually. This is the annual report for the year to the 30th of April. In that time, their NAV total return was up 55%. Now, that compared to a rise of 2.1% for the cash benchmark, which is these days three months, uh, Sonia plus 2%. In share price times, they were even better, actually. Share price total return was up nearly 62% as the discount narrowed from 4% to basically around NAV. So, yeah, a, a good period for Nick and Charlotte here. Uh, what worked well for them? Well, exposure to mining Vietnam and UK microcap. And so to kind of break that down a little bit, they had holdings in Baker Street CQS, Natural Resources, Vietnam Opportunities and River and Mercantile, UK Microcap, I think all funds that we've discussed in the past. Uh, on the kind of flip side, the detractors, Atlantis, Japan Growth and Life Settlement Assets weren't quite so good for them. But clearly, overall, a very strong period, very good uh, commentary, as always, about the opportunities that they see in the investment company sector at the moment. Uh, and they talk about building stakes in some of the private equity names, such as OP Capital and MB Private Equity, and also uh, more recently, Strategic Equity Capital as well. These are all names, of course, that we've discussed. But they have, or they're about to have their triennial realization process. This allows shareholders to exit at a small discount to NAV, and we'll see a circular next month providing some details around that. Yes, I think it's fair to say in in context that obviously during the pandemic sell-off, because uh... Uh, Nick and Charlotte are looking for what they call sort of discounts on discounts. In other words, they're looking for opportunities which are trading at a discount. And when their own shares went to a discount, you've got a kind of double whammy effect. So they, there was a very big sh- sharp sell-off during the pandemic, but they've come roaring back since then, as you say. And uh, the shares are trading at an all-time high at the moment, I think. So uh, I think they've got uh, good reason to be pleased with their performance over the last year for certain. And I would endorse your comment about the annual report. It's always interesting if you're interested in investment trust to uh, to read what they've got to say about the sector and the opportunities that are in there. Let's move on and talk about uh, Ruffa Investment Company, R-I-C-A, where we've also, they've been talking about the year that they've just had, which is uh, also by their standards and against their own uh, criteria has been uh, also been successful. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So this is a review of the 12 months to the 30th of June. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 15.3% and a share price total return of 19.5%. So what's been going on here? Well, in terms of equity risk, they've been focused on value, cyclicals, commodities and financials. And that's been the case now for a few years. They added to these positions last summer and certainly the fund benefited from stocks geared into the reopening and the recovery. So that would include things like the UK banks, Walt Disney, General Motors and Semex. Uh, And also they had a 5% exposure to UK smaller companies as well. But it wasn't just all about uh, equities. Um, There was quite a lot of uh, interest in their exposure to Bitcoin, uh, which contributed to their returns. And actually, they exited Bitcoin back in April this year. In terms of the index-linked bonds, then obviously that was probably, uh, they offset some of the risk in that area of the portfolio through 
use of payer swaptions, uh, as they called, which uh, lowered the net portfolio duration to zero in that time. And, and gold exposure was a negative contributor as well. But the managers are focused on reducing risk after a strong run from value and cyclical stocks. Equity exposure has been kept around about 40%. Um, and it's interesting, managers' views are always very good. So Hamish Bailey and, and Duncan McInnes, responsible for this one, have been for a number of years. So their view is that uh, we have transitioned into a new economic regime of higher inflation and volatility, uh, in which case uh, conventional bonds no longer have a useful portfolio role. But the fund is prepared, as always, with a broad toolkit of assets to protect against inflation and financial repression. And after a huge recovery, some parts of the markets showing signs of froth and caution. Yes. And of course, the objective of this trust is, is about as far removed from that of might and global opportunities as you could find. This is a kind of multi-asset all-weather fund designed, in their view, to uh, maintain the value of your investments uh, and to look through the volatility of the equity markets in particular and to maintain a uh, real absolute return over every 12-month period. And uh, they've been doing relatively well, even by those standards, in the last uh, in the last period. They did very well during the sell-off last year, of course. Very interesting stuff. Let's move on and talk about an overseas trust now. Let's talk about Invesco Asia, IAT. We've also had some annual results. That's right. They had annual results out to the end of April. Again, a good set of results. The NAV total return was up 56.4% in that time, and that compared with a rise of 34.8% for the MSCI All Countries Asia X Japan Index. Share price terms even better, actually. So share price total return up 58.5% as their discount narrowed from 9% to 8%. So uh, what worked for them? Well, the fact is that the portfolio benefited from being repositioned early for recovery. Uh, technology stocks such as MediaTek and Alstec Computer and Delta Electronics being key drivers, whereas the stock selection in the energy sector detracted to an extent. But interesting, they, they actually had a little bit of net cash on the balance sheet at the year end, about 1% or so, and that compared with gearing of 4% at the end of April last year. And that reflected the manager being a little bit less bullish on life. Um, it's worth mentioning the dividend on this one as well. So their revenue return per share for the financial year was down 26% to 5.8p. But actually, dividends totaling 15.1p share were declared in respect to the financial year. That's up from 7p in the previous year. And that reflects the fund's new enhanced dividend policy. So effectively, they're looking to pay out dividends equal to 4% of the NAV each year. So that strategy is similar to that which was adopted by some of the JP Morgan funds, I think, for example. But how does this uh, trust trade in its sector? It's not one of the sort of top performers, I think, is it? Well, in terms of its discount, you're right. We've certainly put it in the Asia-Pacific income uh, subsector reflecting that enhanced dividend policy. It's trading on about an eight, eight and a half percent discount at the moment. That compares with an average of two percent discount from its peer groups. And, and um, a number of its peers actually are trading on premium ratings now. In terms of its NAV performance, well, if you look over five years, it's generated an NAV total return of 84 percent. And that puts it pretty high up in its uh, new peer group, effectively. It's only behind the JP Morgan Asian Growth and Income Fund, which is up 102%. But the uh, weighted average for its peer group is 58%. So it's ahead of that. So to talk about the yield, therefore, is it? Well, we, we know what the yield is going to be. It's going to be 4% of the NAV, but the NAV is going to move up and down. So it's not like you can compare it to a, a trust that is paying out a consistent dividend every year, going a little bit higher each year. Uh, is that fair? Is that how it works? Yeah, absolutely right. So um, obviously, its NAV will, will move around 
uh, with its performance with markets. And so uh, you're right. It's unlikely to end up one of the AIC dividend heroes, for instance, where you have that kind of nice dividend progression over a period of time. There's going to be dividend volatility. But uh, you know, at the moment, that 4% MAV return through a dividend, that equates to a yield of 4.1% on its current share price. Okay, so thank you for explaining that. Let's move on and talk about 3i Group, whose uh, ticker is III, 3i's. They've had something to say. That's right. They provided an update uh, for the the second quarter of this year, so the three months to the end of June, in which time we've seen uh, a total return of 12.2%. So uh, a decent period for 3i Group again. You know, what's worked for them? Well, funnily enough, action, uh, which I think we talked about on a number of occasions, continues to perform. All its stores are now fully reopened and it's seen strong EBITDA and sales growth. And actually, the valuation of action was increased from 4.6 billion to 5.5 billion in the period. Uh, and that's basically on an unchanged multiple of 18 and a half times earnings. So it is, in a words, driven by earnings. In addition to that, the fund has received some refinancing proceeds from Royal Sanders. It's worth noting that actually Scandlines, which is another one of its major holdings, that is still struggling a bit. Uh, as a result of travel restrictions, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, although freight performed strongly and leisure is starting to, to pick up towards the end of the period. But uh, the fund, or certainly through I group, they probably wouldn't consider themselves to be a fund, but they are sitting on a bit of cash and they've got an undrawn credit facility and their gearings at a relatively modest level of 7% at the end of June. I've got a, a stats question for you about this one, uh, Simon, as your role as uh, our chief stats expert. In the days gone by, we always used to, I remember reading about statistics, quoting the average for investment trust performance, and it was always tended to be excluding 3i. And that was on the grounds that it was, uh, I think, the largest investment trust at the time and rather distorting the figures. But of course, it's not the largest investment trust anymore. Scottish mortgage, I think, is bigger than that. So uh, is that no longer the case? Am I wrong in recalling that? Is that what you used to do? You're absolutely spot on. And for the reasons that you that you outlined, I mean, 3i Group has always been a very large uh, an investment company, if, if that's how you wish to describe them, they might take issue with that. But yeah, we excluded them from the kind of the performance or from the rating as well. And actually, there have been at times when uh, 3i Group has traded on quite a significant premium, equally quite a significant discount. And um, there's always been a moot point whether that's really been driven by its NAV performance. So there have been technical reasons to uh, exclude 3i Group over the years, though you're absolutely spot on. Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust is now a larger investment trust is a larger vehicle at this precise moment in time. Okay, so that's uh, clear that one little point for me. That's very helpful, Simon. Thank you very much. And now let's move on and talk about BB Healthcare, BBH, which has had some results. That's right. It's had interim results out to the end of May. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of uh, 7.1%, and that compares to a rise of 3.9% for the MSCI World Healthcare Index. Uh, in share price terms, they did it a little bit better, actually. Their total return uh, was up 8.3%. And they also declared an interim dividend of 3.015p. And that's in line with the target of 6.03p uh, for their uh, financial year to 2021. So, yeah, always uh, an interesting story here. So for people less familiar with BB Healthcare, this is a, a global high conviction, long-only healthcare trust. It's got a maximum of about 35 holdings. It's run by Bellevue Asset Management. And their focus on companies that are really part of the, the changes that were seen in the healthcare sector. Uh, and there's a big emphasis on innovation. So you're unlikely to see companies such as GlaxoSmithKline uh, Beecham in there, for instance. 
So what's worked for them uh, this period? Well, they've moved the portfolio around a little bit. Exposures to healthcare IT and healthcare technology will scale back on valuation grounds. Equally, diagnostics will scale back on valuations, but they um, like that as as an area. Uh, Dental is viewed as expensive, and I think we could all agree with that. But they see services and tools sector as, uh, as attractive. But they've also issued new shares as well. And in fact, they've now got a market cap above uh, a billion pounds. And that's resulted in them being promoted to the the FTSE 250. But the managers there think the second half of 2021 may prove uh, tricky for equity investors, certainly compared with the first half of this year. But perhaps unsurprisingly, they believe healthcare is well-placed with a broader positive fundamental outlook. Yes, I think uh, and they make some good points uh, in support of that argument, given uh the continued advances in uh, medical technology and so on, and the increasing uh, aging of the population. It does suggest that if you were in the right part of the healthcare sector, you could do quite well. But obviously, healthcare has been uh, one of the sectors that was affected earlier this year, sold off quite a bit, but is uh, still turning out good uh, returns over time. How does BB Healthcare rate in the market now? You said it was at a premium. Is it still there? And if so, uh, is it coming in or is it expanding? So BB Healthcare is trading on a premium, probably about 1% or so, and that's brought in line with its average over the previous 12 months. And yes, as mentioned, its its market cap is probably creeping up nearer to 1.1 billion at the moment. But healthcare as a subsector is is certainly in demand. If you look across the different funds in that space, many of them are trading around NAV or on, on small premiums. Okay, so let's move on and talk about Harbourvest Global Private Equity, HVPE as it says, is a private equity trust. How are they doing? Yep. So um, they provided an NAV update so for for June. But it's worth noting, I think, that um, not only was that NAV up 5% in the month, but it really reflects that uh, their 31st of March valuations uh, have now finally all come through. So that's really what's driven that rise. Uh, I think probably the other key point to note as well, and just bear in mind that Harbourvest Global Private Equity represents a, a fund of funds of funds, um, that's a lot of funds, but if you kind of get the idea, it's a very diversified uh, portfolio. But actually, in in June, they saw a record level of distributions over 131 uh, US dollars, and this is the largest amount of distributions ever received in a single month. And I think that gives some insight into the level of investment activity that we're seeing in the private equity uh, industry at the moment. But they continue to trade at a discount, like most of the or many of the private equity trusts. Absolutely right. Yeah. So we've got them on a discount of about 24% at the moment. And that's not really out of line with what we see in, in that particular uh, subsector. We'll probably average uh, about 22% discount. So that includes funds such as ICG Enterprise, 23% discount, Pantheon International, 20% discount, and Standard Life Private Equity as well. So all those kind of fund of funds um, seem to be uh, out of favor with the market at the moment. Yes, I mean, do you have any idea why that is? I mean, we the managers of these trusts have been making very, you know, confident noises, should we say, about how well things are going and how much activity is going on. Uh, but these discounts seem to be fairly stubborn. I mean, it is uh, a surprise in a way. They've been promoted by a number of uh, firms as well. Uh, what do you think the reason is here, Simon? Yeah, no, it's a really good question and one that a lot of people across the industry have been asking for uh, some time now. Actually, um, we, we mentioned the Might and Global Opportunities earlier and uh, Nick Greenwood and Charlotte Cuthbertson's report. And actually, they, they address this very issue because they're kind of on the other side of this. They're seeking, as I, think, as I mentioned, to, to add some private equity names to their portfolio. And they noted that for various reasons, uh, particularly the wealth management community, that there's been changes to the way that they have to disclose the look-through fees 
um, private equity as an asset class has become less attractive as a result of that. So it is an expensive asset class. The, the fees on private equity funds historically have been higher than so you'd expect for long-only equity funds invested in uh, publicly quoted companies. And as a result of that, particularly when you put a kind of fund of funds structure around it, the fees can be higher. Now, people in the private equity industry uh, or the listed private equity space would argue, well, that's justified by the level of outperformance that they've generated over an extended period of time. But there is still this issue with the look-through fees. And certainly, it seems to have led to to, to some selling or a lack of demand from um, areas such as wealth managers. Okay, so we'll move on and we'll talk about Herald Investment Trust, HRI. This is managed by a lady called Katie Potts. And... Uh, had some interim results. That's right. So they announced interim results for the six months to the 30th of June, um, in which time their NAV total return was up 14%. Uh, and in fact, in share price terms, that actually wasn't quite as anywhere as good. They were down 2.9%. So um, the UK remains the largest uh, portfolio allocation. So that's about 49% of the allocation. Now, that was in positive territory, up 17%. And that represented an outperformance of the benchmark return. Uh, and the US allocation, uh, 23% of the portfolio, that was up 8.5%, so not quite as much and slightly behind the benchmark return of 9.5%. In the other kind of key allocations are Europe uh, and Asian, and obviously they were both in uh, positive territory. Obviously, the share price um, ended in negative territory, and in fact, they spent about £19 million to repurchase 1.3% of the issued share capital in that period. Yes, this is an issue, isn't it? Because... In the past, it's always been, well, as I've seen it lumped in with the, you know, the big technology trust, but uh, it does not really do that. It's a global smaller companies trust. I, I think it's uh, how you would choose to describe it. And it's got very good performance records. So it's surprising that its uh, discount has widened a little. Would you have any thoughts as to why that might be? No, you're spot on in terms of your comments. We're going to come on to talk about Polar Capital Technology in a moment, um, but it's very different to that fund and also uh, Allianz Technology as well, which invariably it gets compared to. Um, I mean, Katie Potts is a hugely experienced uh, investor in, in what she'd call it TMT, so technology, media and telecommunications stocks, and the long-term track record is, is very, very strong. But it's a funny one, really. It probably has a bit of a lower profile than some of the aforementioned technology funds and um, perhaps um, there are times when, particularly with the, the kind of the big tech names in the, those other funds, portfolios have uh, really driven returns. And it, it obviously doesn't invest in those type of names. But if you look at the rating that it's on at the moment, it's on probably on about 14% discount. That compares with an average discount with the previous 12 months of 11%. So this is particularly true of the UK portfolio with the UK subsection of the portfolio, it's very much in mid and small caps. It's a hugely diversified portfolio as well. So something very, very different. It's very, very different indeed. But let's move on to one that has not got a low price, and that is Polar Capital Technology. You mentioned that. It's obviously a much, much bigger investment trust, and they produce the annual results. The first thing I should say is that uh, if you read the annual results and you read the annual report, it is one of the most comprehensive annual reports you're going to be able to find out there. It's really it's heavily researched and uh, always interesting about not just about the trends in technology, which are interesting themselves, but also has some very uh, balanced commentary about the markets and where we are in the cycle as well. So uh, I think I should mention that. But uh, let's talk about the meat, as it were, in, in this uh, particular sandwich, and that is the results and uh, how have they done over this period? Yep. So these are annual results to the end of April, in which time they had an NAV total return of 45.5%. 
and that compared with 46.4% for the benchmark, so slightly behind. In share price terms, uh, again, actually not as good, up 33.3% as the fund moved from a premium to a discount. Now, it doesn't have an absolute discount target, uh, but it has been buying back some shares. But uh, the stock performance in the portfolio is ahead of the index, but it's actually offset by the fact that it held an average cash position of 4.6% in that period and also had some NASDAQ put options as well. But uh, what worked well? Well, it was holding such as Salando, PayPal, Zoom and Twilio, and also positive contributions from Cloudflare, CrowdStrike, Peloton, Pinterest, Snap and Tesla, though they have actually sold out of that one in February. But you're completely correct. Uh, ben Rogoff, the long-term manager of this one, makes the point that the world has changed, that we've, we've seen five years of change in a five-week period, I think referencing back to March, April last year. Um, he expects a quieter period for the rest of this year. Uh, and he believes that while valuations aren't cheap, um, they're certainly not uh, overstretched at the moment. But just on that investment manager's report, he made some comment about uh, rather than considering the pandemic as last cycle's crowning moment, we believe that in time, it and uh, the resulting work modality will prove the foundation for the next wave of technology disruption. So it's very inspirational stuff. Yes. And uh, so this is an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, because at the end of last year, uh, all the technology trusts were trading at, uh, well, uh, either at par or at premiums, and now they're all selling at discounts. So unless you think that the outlook for the sector has changed fundamentally, it's slightly surprising, I would say. I mean, what, what discounts have you got uh, Polar Capital and Allianz on at the moment? Again, you're absolutely right. So Allianz technology has been derated. So um, in the previous 12 months, it's probably averaged about a 1%, 2% discount, something like that. It's now on a 7% discount. Polar Cap technology, its rating has been a little bit wider. So it's averaged 6% in the previous 12 months. It's now on an 8% discount. So we have seen um, a bit of a sell-off for technology this year. Now, whether that's as people have looked to kind of buy more cyclical value names to take advantage of the market moves, or frankly, they're just taking profit on technology. Clearly, technology worked very, very well last year. And I think, um, you know, just talking to clients out there, I think they were kind of wary of being too exposed. They're quite happy to take a little bit of money off the table. And one wonders whether that's hit some of the ratings. But yes, on a kind of long term view, you know, there might be some people who, who would argue that this represents an, an interesting entry point. I mean, the discount, I don't think, has been significant, much wider for a long time. Obviously, as you say, they've been buying back shares at around just under the 10% level in the case of Polar Capital Technology. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, obviously, they have been sold off because partly because I think one of the problems is that the index has these very big names in it like Apple and so on. And if you get those wrong, even if you're you know, you're underweight or overweight by the wrong amount, that can have a significant uh, impact on the performance. But having said that, you know, with the bond yields falling again and, and growth coming, making a bit of a comeback, you would have think it's surprising. It looks like it's slightly anomalous to me. Uh, but that's only on the surface, of course. OK, so we're going to round off by looking at uh, some property investment trust results. But rather than go through them all, I think these are mainly NAV updates. Why don't you just give us the general story and maybe pick out uh, the one that's done best or the one that has done least well, that sort of thing, Simon. We've got, uh, I think we've got four on the list at the moment here. I'll just list them here. AEW UK, uh, Drum Income Plus, Edgerston Property Investment Company, and Schroeder Real Estate Investment Trust. So uh, that's AEWU, DRIP, DRIP is the Drum Income Plus one. Epic is Edison Property and SREI is Schroeder Real Estate Investment Trust. So what, what would be your general sum up of the, what they've been saying about their NAVs, Simon? 
Yeah, it's a positive picture, basically. Uh, I mean, they're all reporting positive uplifts or positive NAV total returns anyway for that three-month period to the end of June. AEW UK REIT has probably uh, had the best period. That's up 10% in NAV total return terms. And apparently that represented the highest quarterly return since the fund's IPO in 2015. So that probably gives you some insight into where they're at. I'm just looking down the list. Probably drum income is the weakest NAV to return 3%, and then Edison Property up 4.9, and Schroeder Real Estate up 5.3 NAV to return. So all decent numbers in that respect. As always, you have to kind of look under the bonnet a little bit in terms of what's going on with regards to dividends and rent collection. But just on that rent collection piece, uh, AEW uh, UK REIT actually gave some insight into their third quarter of 2021 rental collection, and that comes in at 88% at the moment. In terms of Q2, uh, Edison Property are at 98%. And again, for Q3, Schroeder Real Estate are at 90%. So it would suggest overall that the numbers are okay, but there's still probably some work to be done then. And that's obviously going to reflect the type of property assets that these respective funds are exposed to. Um, Edison Property was probably quite uh, an interesting one. Um, I think as we've discussed before, they had a review not too long ago, and they're actually going to be focused on the retail warehouse uh, sector where um, the investment team believes there's some value and opportunity. And as a result of that, they intend to sell offices or recycle proceeds into retail warehouse assets. uh, And that work is underway. And also uh, on the dividend side as well. So again, just hopping around a little bit. AEW UK REIT has declared a, a dividend of 2p for the quarter, and that's in line with its target of 8p per annum. Uh, again, in terms of Edison, a uh, property investment company, they announced a 25% dividend increase back in April, and that remains well covered. And the board's expectation is they'd be able to increase the dividend further with a review after its year end. So again, this is all kind of part of the, the general picture that we're seeing from these property companies, that there is a, a recovery. It's, to be fair, at different uh, speeds. Obviously, some are faring better than others, but uh, property as an asset class seems to be on the front foot. Yes, I'm just looking at the ARC figures here, and they're saying share price total return, uh, obviously combining both the uh, improvement in NAVs and also the uh, narrowing of discounts is uh, where it looks, according to the ARC, on a weighted basis around 35%. And some have done better than that, some have done less well. So there have been uh, pretty good returns to be had from them over the last 12 months. I think that's right. I mean, uh, clearly they were, you know, we turned the clock back uh, 12 months ago. Certainly when you look at March, April, time, you know, they really were in the eye of the storm. Uh, they were hit very, very hard. So there was a lot of work to be done uh, and they have seen a good recovery. But but some of them uh, in terms of share price terms will be significantly behind where they were going into the um, the outbreak of the pandemic. And the yields on these, uh, which are obviously the primary fraction always, they're in, still in a range, what, typically between around sort of 4 and 7%, that sort of thing. Is that about right? That, that, that's spot on. I mean, again, there is a range and, uh, you know, many of them, as we've discussed over previous podcasts, have had to rebase their dividends or suspend their dividends at some stage. Uh, most of those dividends, in fact, I think all of them are now back online and some have already kind of hit their kind of pre-pandemic levels. But yeah, 4 to 7% is about right. Very good. Well, that uh, finishes us off for this week, uh, Simon. Thank you for your helpful comments as always. If you're interested in the Moneymakers Circle, we have an interesting uh, Q&A this week with the man who runs Gore Street Energy Storage. Uh, which recently raised some money for its uh, battery storage business. Really interesting, I think, actually, to talk about that whole sector and uh, why it's proving so popular. So if that's of interest to you, you'll find that on the Moneymaker Circle. 
Apart from that, we'll be back next week uh, with our normal collection of reports and uh, occasional editorializing. Uh, so, Simon, thank you very much and look forward to speaking again next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.